be reading from the contemporary English version, uh, Genesis 1 through Genesis 2, verse 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was barren with no form of life. It was under a roaring ocean covered with darkness, but the Spirit of God was moving over the water. God said, I command light to shine, and light started shining. God looked at the light and saw that it was good. He separated light from darkness and named the light day and the darkness night. Evening came and then morning. That was the first day. God said, I command a dome to separate the water above it from the water below it. And that's what happened. God made the dome and named it sky. Evening came and then morning. That was the second day. God said, I command the water under the sky to come together in one place so that there will be dry ground. And that's what happened. God named the dry ground land, and he named the water ocean. God looked at what he had done and saw that it was good. God said, I command the earth to produce all kinds of plants, including fruit trees and grain. And that's what happened. The earth produced all kinds of vegetation. God looked at what he had done, and it was good. Evening came, and then morning. That was the third day. God said, I command lights to appear in the sky and to separate day from night and to show the time for seasons, special days and years. I command them to shine on the earth. And that's what happened. God made two powerful lights, the brighter one to rule the day and the other to rule the night. He also made the stars. Then God put these lights in the sky to shine on the earth to rule day and night, and to separate light from darkness. God looked at what he had done, and it was good. Evening came, and then morning. That was the fourth day. God said, I command the ocean to be full of living creatures, and I command birds to fly above the earth. So God made the giant sea monsters and the living creatures that swim in the ocean. He also made every kind of bird. God looked at what he had done, and it was good. Then he gave the living creatures his blessing. He told the ocean creatures to live everywhere in the ocean and the birds to live everywhere on earth. Evening came and then morning. That was the fifth day. God said, I command the earth to give life to all kinds of tame animals, wild animals, and reptiles. And that's what happened. God gave, God gave every one of them. Then he looked at what he had done, and it was good. God said, now we will make humans, and they will be like us. We will let them rule the fish, the birds, and all other living creatures. So God created humans to be like himself. He made men and women. God gave them his blessing and said, Have a lot of children. Fill the earth with people and bring it under your control. Rule over the fish in the ocean, the birds in the sky, and every animal on the earth. I have provided all kinds of fruit and grain for you to eat, and I have given the green plants as food for everything else that breathes. These will be food for animals, both wild and tame, and for birds. God looked at what he had done. All of it was very good. Evening came, and then morning. That was the sixth day. So the heavens and the earth and everything else was created. By the seventh day, God had finished his work, and so he rested. God blessed the seventh day and made it special, because on that day he rested from his work. This is the word of the Lord.
About a month ago, uh, I think I mentioned to you that Mary Baldrige, one of our shepherding team members, had a, had a good idea. God seems to have put in our heart this uh, idea of racial reconciliation, and when Daryl Arnold ministered here, there was a lot of connection. Matter of fact, if I hear one of you quote him one more time, I'm getting really tired of it. Uh, no, <laughs> no, I love Daryl. No, I just kept hearing, Daryl said this, Daryl said this, and Daryl said this. It's been great. And so Mary said, well, why don't we have a supper club? Why don't our church and their church have a club where you have us over and then we'll have you over? And so we said, great idea. So we met with Daryl last week and um, pitched the idea. And the way in, I said, Mary, one thing about this. This is your idea. This is your work. I'm not going to have anything to do when we walk out of this meeting. Well, Daryl says, that's a good idea, but it's too early um, I think we should start with you preaching here next uh, February 8th. And uh, I, I don't know if you've been to Overcoming Believers Church. Um, it is a wonderful church, 1,000, 1,500, uh, very Pentecostal uh, church. And when Daryl was here, Daryl toned it way back. <laughs> okay? And, and I've been there, and he is able to hold a thousand people spellbound for like all afternoon. Um, and I said to Daryl, I don't know if that's a good idea. <laughs> you know, I said, I'm a middle aged white guy who wears sweaters. This is just not uh, probably going to work. And he said, Oh, no, 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 it, it'll, it'll work, it'll work. So next uh, Sunday, that's what I'll be doing. Um, ask if any of you want to to come. If that's something that's on your heart, the service will likely be longer than uh, than our service would be. And I would ask you to pray. Uh, I am a little nervous about it. And, and ironically, the one thing that worries me the most is the organ man. Now, one of the things that uh, <laughs> Daryl has a guy over to the right with this huge electric organ. And every time Daryl would make a good point, the guy would go. <laughs> And, and you remember the runners? Then the runners would start going back and forth. And I have this fear that the organ man will never play. Uh, so, and if he does play, I don't know what to do. I mean, you all never say anything when I, when I, when I, when I, when I like that. So, uh, please pray for next uh, Saturday, Sunday at 1230. Um, well, this winter we are uh, addressing this very important question. How do we pursue unity in our congregation amidst all our delightful theological diversity? And here's the way that we've tried to do it at All Souls. I'll put this up before. Uh, if you could pop that one up, uh, Bruce. All Souls wants to be a church where Christians who disagree about important questions of biblical interpretation can live together in loving unity. We strive towards this vision by affirming the Nicene Creed while respecting, challenging, and learning from our brothers and sisters who interpret the Bible differently on non-credal issues. So, two main ideas in that statement. The first one is, uh, we want you to affirm the Nicene Creed. And so, for a couple of weeks this winter, we're asking, what does that mean? To affirm, to believe in the Creed. And last week, we spent the whole time talking about uh, this phrase, believe. What does it mean to believe? And, and, I, and I said that one way... To think about believing is as accepting your role in the drama of redemption. Now, I got an illustration about this. Going to do a little bragging here. My daughter, Sajin, who's in Chicago trying to become a professional dancer, got her first professional part. Uh, woo We got the text, yes. 
Yes, we're very thrilled. Uh, she is going to perform in March with the Winifred Hahn dancers in a ballet called Promise. And Dad did the wrong thing. How much are they paying you, honey? <laughs> Don't ever do that if you have artists as children, you know. So, uh, 50 bucks. So, when you think of uh, uh, 15 years of ballet lessons, four years of college, it's, it's all paying off. I mean, it's all, it's all paying off. So, the, the ballet is based on Steinbeck's novel, East of Eden. And uh, that explores the lives of two families in the central California uh, Salinas Valley. Well, the company had already begun work, and somebody had to drop out. And so the director came to watch Sajin dance and invited her to play a small, but in her father's humble opinions, highly significant role in the, uh, in the story. And so Sajin had to rearrange her life in some pretty dramatic ways to accept her role in this play. Now, in a similar way, believing in Jesus is like accepting a role in a great play. And as we saw last week, everybody has a script. We all have a story that we use to make sense of our lives. We all have a a narrative that we use to make us safe and happy. Uh, Usually these stories come out of our culture, uh, our wounds, our, our fallenness. We're always the author, director, and star of our own play. But the problem is these stories, these scripts always fail us in the end because they never really make us safe and happy. And so we become believers when we reject the script that we've been performing and take a part in the great play that God is producing. Conversion is changing scripts, and it requires a reorientation of your life, as it did with Sajin. So we could think of the drama of salvation as a play with four acts. Uh, Act one, uh, creation. Act two, fall. Act three, redemption. Act four, new creation. And someone has described the Christian life as coming on stage somewhere in the middle of the third act and improvising. And that's kind of an interesting way to think about it. Now, the 17th century uh, Puritan and poet John Donne put it like this. He said, uh, the acts of the apostles, he, in a sermon, if we could put this one up, Bruce, the acts of the apostles were to convey the name of Christ Jesus and to propagate the gospel over all the world. Beloved, you are the actors upon the same stage, too. The uttermost parts of the earth are your scene." Act out the Acts of the Apostles. Well, Sajin had not read East of Eden, and so the first thing the director told her to do was become familiar with the story so that she would know where to fit in. And uh, although I don't know much about improvising, uh, I I can only imagine that if you're to have any hope of doing that well, of walking onto the stage in the middle of the third act, you would have to know the whole story. So part of what it means to believe is to learn the story that you're playing a part in. Now, thankfully, the Nicene Creed summarizes the four acts of the play for us. The first article of the Creed summarizes the first act, which is creation. And uh, the first line goes like this. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. 
Now, my other daughter, Ashton, is also studying for a stable and lucrative career in theater. And, and so when she is home for, there's no bitterness, no bitterness at all. So when, when, she, when, when she is home, she reads plays. She's always reading plays. And so we have plays scattered across the house. And so I picked one up called The Secret Garden. And uh, you, you, the word players, I think, did it last year. It was a wonderful play. So you open it up. The first page tells me that I'm about to read a play in three acts. The main characters include Mary Lennox, Mrs. Medlock, Mark and Dickens Sowerby, Archibald Craven, Colin Craven, Ben Weatherstaff, Dr. Craven, and The Robin. The time is 1911. The place is an unspecified British colony of East India and on the grounds and interior of Misselthwaite Manor in Yorkshire, England. And evidently, that is what an actor preparing to play in that drama needs to know before they begin the character, the setting, the plot. Well, in a similar way, the creation story prepares us to enter the drama of redemption. Uh, The time is in the beginning. The place is the newly forming earth. The first character that we meet is God. And the play begins with the first verse of the Bible with a kind of an overture, a sweeping summary of all God is about to do in the first act. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, after the overture, the play begins, the curtain opens, the stage is dark, it is barren of life and light. You hear waves lapping and a wind blowing. Suddenly, a voice like the sound of thunder cracks like lightning. Let there be light. There is light. That's the first day. On the dawn of the second day, the same voice thunders again. Sea and sky are created. That's the second day. On the third day, the voice speaks into being the great blue ball of earth itself. On the fourth day, the sun, the moon, and the stars are summoned from nothing and flung into their heavenly orbits. On the fifth day, the voice breathes into life speckled trout and sea bass and turtles and shrimp. And as soon as the barren seas are transformed into a teeming aquarium of colorful marine life, the voice hurls into the skies, honking geese, warbling warblers, gobbling turkeys. The symphony builds to a crescendo as we approach the climax of the first act, the sixth day. And the sun rises over a barren, frosty tundra. And as if the earth were a Jackson Pollock canvas, the voice splashes green across the tundra, and the first rainforests appear. Another splash of burnt orange brings the first autumn. Soon the canvas is covered with all the colors of life. Gray-blue mountain rages are capped with white frosting. Rolling amber wheat fields nestle against pastel prairie skies. Gnarly palm trees drop hairy coconuts on sparkling white beaches. But God is not done. As the sixth day comes to an end, he takes a handful of dirt, breathes on it, a man emerges from the palm of his hand. And then God takes a rib from the man's side and sculpts a woman from it. You are like me, God tells the couple. I have made you in my image. 
He puts them in the lush garden that is this new world. He tells them to take care of it for him. They are the first park rangers. And the seventh day, he rests. When we say we believe in the creed, we're saying that we believe that God is the maker of heaven and earth. We're not saying that we know exactly how God made heaven and earth. We're not saying that we know exactly how long it took him. We are saying that we believe God made heaven and earth. Now, who is this creator God? One of the things authors do when they begin a story is they start to sketch out the character, and the author of Genesis certainly is doing that here. He, he is very familiar with other creation stories circulating in the ancient world. And he wants his readers to see that the God of this story, the God of the Bible, is a very different God than the God of all the other creation accounts. For one thing, this God is much more powerful than other gods. Other nations worship the sun and the moon This God creates the sun and the moon. The gods of other creation stories wrestle with rival sea monsters for power. This God creates the sea monsters. Other gods go through elaborate magical rituals to create the world. This God simply speaks and the world is born. So the God that we meet in the first act of the biblical story is a supremely powerful God. Now characters who come on stage later love to praise God for the power he demonstrates in both creating and sustaining the world. Uh, An awestruck Hebrew politician prays, You alone are the Lord, creator of the heavens and all the stars, creator of the earth and those who live in it, creator of the ocean and all its creatures, You are the source of life, praised by the stars that fill the heavens. And late in the last act of the play, an angelic worship band can't stop repeating the same simple lyrics over and over. Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory, honor, and power. You created all things, and by your decision they are and were created. The main character in the drama of redemption is supremely powerful. Now, in future acts, his creatures will pile together the strongest words in their vocabulary to get their point across. They will name this God the God Most High, the Lord of heaven and earth, the King of kings and Lord of lords. God will accept this worship and claim this authority for himself. He will say, I am the Lord, your holy God. I am Israel's creator and king. Now in the acts that we'll look at in the coming weeks, we'll see this great king move boldly to establish his reign across all the cosmos. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. For now, all we need to point out is that the fathers, we'll call them the Nicene fathers, the the church leaders who gathered at the Council of Nicaea, they looked at the the play and and they decided that, that they needed to describe this creator God to us and so they called him Almighty, 
pantocrator in Greek, omnipotence in, in, in the Latin. And so when you say that you believe in one God, Father, Almighty, what you are saying is that you are believing in a God who created heaven and earth, who is supremely powerful. A thoughtful friend of mine uh, told me once that, that this claim that God is all-powerful troubled her. She said, I've seen a five-year-old boy, his little body riddled with tumors, scoot across the floor of the oncology room and moan, ouch, with every hobble on his walker. And then she looked at me and she said, where was the all-powerful God then? Well, I don't know. I don't have the answer to that question, but it may help to think of God as the author of a story. Bad things happen in stories. Matter of fact, you wouldn't have a story if nothing bad happened and there wasn't a problem to overcome. The author of a story doesn't do away with evil. She moves the plot forward to her desired end, even though her characters can suffer. And so perhaps God's power is like that. He is the author who is at work behind the pages bringing the story to his desired end. And so when you say, I believe in the Father Almighty, you're not saying, I understand the problem of evil and have solved it. You're not saying, I have no doubts. You are saying, I believe that there is an author behind the pages working through all of life towards a good end. I was reminded of the power of a a better story recently. I read the novel, All the Light We Cannot See. It's the, the story of Marie Lore, a blind French girl, And she flees with her father to a small village on the coast of Brittany when the Germans occupy Paris. And her father is taken away from her and she has to live with her mentally ill uncle in a tall, narrow house by the sea. And when the Germans come in and and take over, uh, they begin to ban all radio frequencies. But Marie Lore and her mentally ill uncle have this compulsion to continue to put out a radio show every night at 11 o'clock, even though it means that their life will be risked. And the, the, the uncle starts with some classical music, and by the end, gradually people find out about it, and these little French families gather in farmhouses around illegal radios at 11 o'clock at night to, to hear the story, and it sustains them during this horrific time of their life. And, and Marie Lore has one book in Braille, and it's called 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And so... She always reads this story to her radio audience because it's a story about a man who's lost his home and perseveres under great odds. Now, why would French families risk their lives to hear a little girl read them a story? Well, maybe because they knew that the story they were living in It was a horror story, and it wasn't the true story, and that there was a better story 
that made sense of life. I think the gospel's like that. I think that's why you're here tonight. I think that's what we all long for, a better story that somehow is above the, the horror story that so often is this fallen world. You know, human beings just can't seem to escape this longing for a better story. Um, some of the church's wisest writers have talked about this, and they've said that this is why human beings all talk about justice, whether they believe in God or not. C.S. Lewis makes this point in Mere Christianity. N.T. Wright makes this point in Simply Christian. Many have talked about it. That whether you're a believer or not, you have this sense that there ought to be a story, that things ought to be put to rights, that at the end there ought to be some kind of fairness. Tom Wright, a New Testament scholar, puts it like this. He says, how does it happen that we all share not just a sense that there is justice, but a passion for it? A deep longing that things should be put to rights. A sense of -of out-of-jointness that goes on nagging and gnawing and sometimes screaming at us. One answer, Wright says, is that there really is someone speaking to us who cares very much about this present world and who has made us in the world for a purpose which we will indeed involve justice. Things being put to rights. Ourselves being put to rights. And the world being rescued at last. So when Jesse puts the creed up and we say, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, one of the things that you are saying you believe in is justice. Now the God that we meet in Genesis 1 is also much more loving than the gods of other creation stories. Babylonians had this classic creation story. And in that one, the gods create humans at the very end as kind of an afterthought as their slaves to to feed them. But in Genesis, God creates the first people as the crown of all of creation, and he, he treats them as a loving father would. He prepares a home for them. He gives them food. He gives them meaningful work to do. And friends, this is a really important part of our story. Is that as Christians, we believe that the author of our story, the center of the universe, is our dad. That he loves us. And that he's powerful enough to somehow work through all the tragedy and the bloodstained pages of our lives towards a good end. And it seems more and more, if you, if you watch film or things like that, that, that that story is disappearing in our culture. It seems like all the big films anymore are, are, are so often post-apocalyptic. They're hunger games and worlds with uh, no, no love at the center of the universe. An abandoned human race left to the person who can shoot the arrow the fastest. But that's not our story. The God who created the world is our Father. And so Jesus teaches the disciples to pray to their Father in heaven. 
Paul looks back to the first act when he says, when we, we have only one God and he's the Father, he created everything and we live for him. The belief that God is our Father is so central in the mind of the apostle that he can't help but begin his letters to the new churches by praying that God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ will be kind to you and bless you with peace. And so when the Nicene Fathers came together and they looked for language to describe the first act of the play, they they chose this word, Father. So the next time Jesse puts the creed up and and you say, I believe in one God, Father Almighty, you, you are saying that you believe that love is at the center of the universe. Do you? That's our story. When our stories lack a father, we suffer. And I know there are many reasons why that can happen. A prison minister once went cell to cell a few weeks before Mother's Day. And all the inmates had a common request. They said, hey, hey, buddy, could you get me a Mother's Day card and, and mail it to her? And so he did. A few weeks later, he uh, went back to the cells, knocked on them, and said, Hey, I'm here. Uh, Anybody want a Father's Day card? None of them said they did. They'd all led fatherless stories, stories of being abandoned by their father. And fatherless stories rarely end well. The God of the biblical drama is not an absent father. He is love. The Apostle John, who seemed to grasp and experience the Father's love more than any other biblical writer, put it like this, God loved the people so much that he gave his only son so that everyone who has faith in him will have eternal life and never really die. One of the things I hope that happens in this series is that you can just step back for a moment and ask yourself, what do I really believe? What do I really believe? Do I really believe that love is at the center of the universe? I found myself asking this question recently at at a swim practice. Actually, the question I was wrestling with is, why is it so hard for us to accept this? One theologian wrote a book on anxiety, and he said that, that, that faith in that context was the courage to accept acceptance. And he asked, well, why do we seem to have so much trouble accepting acceptance? I mean, it sounds like the most natural thing in the world, right? I was thinking about this Tuesday night. We, we had a, a, a bad night, and one of the children, who I love very much, just continues to push me away. And, and it's all, I'll call him Thomas. It's not his name, but it's almost like Thomas wants me to leave him. It, it's like he wants me to get mad at him. And so at this particular practice, Thomas was acting out. He was disrespecting his coaches and tutors. And I went over to him, and I I, I finally said, you know, buddy, this is a privilege, not a right. You can't come next week. And uh, he flew into the most violent rage I've ever seen in a human being. 
It scared me. And I remember thinking, um, if he were three years older, he might try to kill me right now. And he cursed me out, ran away. Um, To make a long story short, we eventually got back to his house, and I talked to his mom, and I explained what had happened. And as I explained what had happened, Thomas flew into another rage and began shaking uncontrollably. And I I, I just said, I I love you, guy. I, I just don't know what to do. And I've kind of been haunted by that all week, kind of really bothered me. And I just began to think, why do we do this? Aren't many of us the same way? I'm thinking of another man uh, I know that just no matter how hard you try to love him, it's, it's, like, it's like he just wants to, to keep pushing you away. Why do we do this? Thomas's dad is in prison. You know, maybe he's living by a script of abandonment. Maybe his story is every man in my life ultimately leaves. I know you're going to leave too, so let's get it over with. I think Thomas knows there a better story. I, I was so uh, upset. I called Stephen Otis that night, and um, I just said, "Man, I've blown it again." I, because I did. I, we'd been in this book group all fall about how to handle at-risk children, and I did everything wrong. I said, you know, I, I said, I'm over this angry black man thing. Uh, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. And took him home. Well, he had dinner with Stephen and Sarah and sat around their table and talked about his anger. And uh, later... Uh, Stephen said it was like the, the anger just drained out. And, and this little guy just wanders around the neighborhood, was nowhere to deal with his stuff. And so it all, it was like a pus just poured out over Stephen and Otis's, Sarah's table. And the next day, he called me and left me a, a message. And he said, Coach Doug, I'm really sorry. It's one of the most moving things that's, that's happened since we've been down there. His whole heart was softened when he sat around that table and they reminded him of a better story. They modeled the the love of a God who never goes away. Do you believe you're loved? Or are you living off of a script of abandonment Is there a a story deep down within you that that just says they're all going to go away at the end? I'm not really worthy of love. And I'm going to pretty much make sure that it never happens. Hmm. Well, the curtain drops on Act 1. We've been introduced to the main characters. We've got a little feel for the plot. And I hope even now you're getting a sense that this is really a great story. Well, I had one little boy left in the car, Kamani, uh, when I took the other one home. And uh, after the boy had gotten upset and I had gotten upset, the car was very quiet. And one of the kids turned on some music, and they love rap music. and 
I always go back and forth as to whether I should make him listen to my music. And, um, I didn't know. I did torture him once with Barry Manilow, but that seemed excessive. You know, that just seemed like I could get arrested for that. So, uh, so tonight, some horrible song was coming through my speakers of my Civic, and if you listen to rap, no, I won't go there, but I mean, the stuff they listen to explains the story that they live in. And I didn't have the presence of mind to turn it off. So anyway, we go in, I have this bad encounter, come back, get in the car, and Kamani changed the station to K-Love. And there was a song about Jesus and his love. And Kamani looked at me and he said, um, Coach Doug, it's time we listen to this. Mm-hmm. 